Welcome to Zoe Science and Nutrition, where world-leading scientists explain how their research can improve your health. Today, we uncover the secrets of the so-called blue zones, the places where celebrating your 100th birthday is commonplace. Our guest is Dan Butner. He's an explorer, a National Geographic fellow, and a leading Blue Zones researcher. Dan takes us into the fascinating lives of people who have lived to be 100 in these places, revealing their daily practices and habits. I'm also joined by Professor Tim Spector. He's one of the world's top 100 most cited scientists and Zoe's scientific co-founder. He shares what the science says about why these habits can help us live longer. Today's lessons come from centuries of collective understanding. And in this episode, you'll learn to apply them to live a longer and healthier life. Dan and Tim, thank you for joining me today. Pleasure. Good to be here. Brilliant. Well, look, we have this tradition here, Dan, that we always start with a quick fire round of questions. And we have this very strict rule. You can say yes or no, or if you absolutely have to, you can give us a one-sentence answer. Are you, you up for that? I'm in. Good. And Dan is a yep. little jet-lagged this morning, so uh, it's a particularly mean way to kid it straight at the beginning, but we're going to give it a go. All right, starting with Dan. Have you found the secret to longevity? Yes. Do people in the blue zones all eat the same food? No. Could having the right friends help me to live longer? Yes. Will you tell us today how we can build our own blue zones at home? Yes. Well, that was easy. And Tim, just a couple for you. Are there foods that can increase my lifespan? Yes. Do I have to go to the gym if I want to live a long and healthy life? No, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. And then final question, Dan, before we get into it, and you, you can have a whole sentence or two. What's the biggest myth about living a long and healthy life that you often hear? That there's a pill or a supplement or a superfood that's going to be your panacea. I think that's a brilliant place to start. Well, look, Dan, for anyone who hasn't seen your recent Netflix series or read your book, I strongly recommend it. But let's assume that maybe some of the listeners here haven't done so. And so before we start to really dissect this whole idea about blue zones, could you just start by explaining like what a blue zone is and why it caught your interest, you know, now many years ago? It's both a concept and a place. So I'm a lifelong explorer for National Geographic. I've led about 21 scientific expeditions. But Around about 20 years ago, I started looking into this idea of longevity, mainly as a mystery. Okinawa, Japan was producing the longest lived uh, humans in the history of the world, largely free of disability. And I thought, aha, that's a great mystery. And um, did a facile expedition there. But uh, uh, I got to thinking that perhaps I could, in a sense, reverse engineer longevity. So instead of looking for an answer in a test tube or a Petri dish or in some genetic code, uh, find populations where people are living statistically longest, and then look for the correlates or the common denominators to see if the patterns just repeated themselves enough that you could see a signal or draw some conclusions. And we found five places where people are living statistically longest. 
Longest of men in the world are Sardinia, Italy. Longest of women, Okinawa, Japan. Uh, the island of Ikaria, Greece, you have a population living about eight years longer, but with almost no discernible dementia. In the Nicoya Peninsula of Costa Rica, uh, people enjoy about half the rate of middle-aged mortality. And what that means is they're about three times more likely to reach a healthy age 95. And then in the United States, we found the longest of people among Christians, Seventh-day Adventists living in and around Loma Linda, California. And then the second part of my work was uh, using standardized methodologies to find the common denominators, and thus my books and the Netflix documentary. Did you find anything that actually ties these places together? Well, geographically, they're all in about the 20th parallel north, interestingly. So you don't see people way in the north living a long time, and you don't see people along the equator living a long time. And the reason, I think, is uh, the 20th parallel is a, a sweet spot of sorts, is along the equator, people are dying of infectious diseases that hobble their longevity or life expectancy. And in the north, perhaps they spend too much time indoors and eating canned foods and you know, not minding their garden, et cetera. I don't know, but there seems I'm to be- I'm feeling doomed already. So we're recording this today in London. Too far north. And yeah. it's, it's pretty gray and wintry. And I thought you were going to yeah. say they don't get enough sunlight. I'm like, and so not the first thing I need to do is, yeah. exactly, is move further south. So uh, am I doomed? Uh, not necessarily doomed, but I, I would say the one of the biggest findings after after- 20 years of this is that uh, for most people, their environment drives their health more so than any um, individual responsibility. So where you live has a big impact. In the United States, for example, uh, within the same cities, there are neighborhoods where the life expectancy is up to 13 years higher than other neighborhoods. 13 years high within the same, in the same within city. The same Boston's city. one of them, by the way. So it's a great example. You, Zoe has a- Where uh, I spend a lot of time in Boston, where the weather yeah. is also not so great. <laughs> yeah, where the, right, right. But you're but saying it, it's not just where, it's not really the latitude, it's like what your environment no, is yeah, like. Yeah, and, and uh, my research work is finding these blue zones and understanding them. My daytime job is working with cities to transport the environmental characteristics that we see driving longevity in blue zones to American cities. And that's been uh, fantastically successful for us. And I know that one of the things you talk about, particularly within the Blue Zones, is this idea of a centenarian. Could you explain what a centenarian is? And maybe just, could you paint a picture a bit of like how people are living in these Blue Zones, which is something you you talk about really beautifully in in, in the book and, and in the show? A centenarian is simply a person that's reached their 100th birthday. And Blue Zones isn't necessarily about centenarians. We don't, well, we do measure centenarian concentration, but that tends to be a byproduct of a population that is producing long-lived people, largely without chronic disease, largely without diabetes, heart disease, types of cancer, dementia. They're not people with better bodies than us. They don't have a genetic advantage. Uh, they're not more disciplined. They're not smarter. They're, they're avoiding the diseases that foreshorten their lives in higher percentages, and that's why they're living a long time. I mean, I wrote four books, New York Times bestselling books on this topic, but you know, in general, people in blue zones don't exercise, which 
uh, is disruptive to a lot of us. That is like, very surprising to hear. You, you don't see anybody doing CrossFit or Pilates or, or uh, you know, an elliptical in their basement. But they do live in places where every time they go to work or a friend's house or out to eat, it occasions the walk. Uh, they always have gardens out back uh, and typically two or three growing seasons a year. Their houses aren't full of the uh, mechanized conveniences to do their work for them. They're, they're doing their own housework and their own yard work and kneading bread by hand. So my team figures that they're, they're moving every 20 minutes or so, but unconsciously, probably keeping their metabolisms burning higher and, and uh, probably burning more calories than somebody who you know, works at their desk all day long and then you know, thinks they're going to the gym at the end of the day. First of all, most people don't go to the gym at the end of the day as they think they're going to do. But secondly, um, it's not as good as spreading out the physical activity throughout the day. Um, if you want to know what a 100-year-old ate to live to be 100, you can't just go ask them because the people don't remember. So to get at that, we found dietary surveys done in all five blue zones over the last 100 years or so, 155 dietary surveys. And Tim, as you know, dietary surveys are perfect, but they, they're directionally correct. And when you, when you meta-analyze uh, them, you start to get a very clear signal or you see the same patterns. Um, so we did that. And what people who make it up to 100, on average, they're eating about 90% whole food plant-based. The five pillars of every longevity diet in the world are whole grains, wheat, corn, and rice, greens, and of course, garden vegetables, they all have garden vegetables, tubers, interestingly, in Okinawa, about 70% of their caloric intake until 1970 came from one tuber known as emo, or the purple sweet potato, nuts, and the cornerstone of every longevity diet in the world is beans. And if you're eating a cup of beans a day, it's probably associated with about four extra years of life expectancy over less healthy sources of protein. The other uh, facets sort of fall into two categories. One is living your life on purpose, which seems soft and spongy to you know real scientists, but there's a pretty clear evidence that if you wake up in the morning with meaning, you're living about eight years longer than people who are rudderless in life. And, and the, really the foundation of Blue Zones is their social connectedness. They tend to prioritize family. They tend to belong to a faith, believe it or not. And they're very careful about their immediate social circle. And, and you don't hear much about these things because marketers can't sell you anything. But really how you connect drives your behavior for the long run in powerful and measurable ways. And we like to talk a lot about how we connect in, in the blue zones. There's a lot to unpack there. I think this being like Zoe Science and Nutrition, I feel like food is probably the place to um, start. And I definitely want to pull Tim in as well as we, we talk a bit more about what you've found out, like looking at the diets of what people are eating across these areas. And, um, you know, the first thing I'm struck is like, I've been to Italy quite often. I've been to Japan once or twice. And it strikes me that those diets seem like almost as far apart as I can imagine. Um, but what's interesting is you're talking about actually how there's sort of commonality across um, these blue zones. So, like, what am I, what am I missing? I guess that actually is is linking them more closely than I had um, had realized. In general, you know, we're constantly marketed these 
superfoods. Whenever I see a superfood, I basically just mentally throw it in the trash bin. <laughs> um, what, usually, when there's a, a health claim on the on the uh, package, you can be pretty sure it's not healthy. And uh, real foods for longevity tend to be peasant foods. The cheap stuff everybody can afford. You know, in America, we hear all the time, you need fresh fruits and vegetables. That's the wrong way to start, especially in the inner city when there are poor people, for two reasons. One, people can't afford it, and it creates an immediate barrier. And number two, people don't know what to do with it. But you give African-Americans or uh, Latin Americans or you know the Italians beans and a grain, they know exactly what to do with it. Africans, the beans and rice. Uh, the uh, Latin Americans, beans and corn tortilla. Um, the the, um, the Italians, pasta fagioli, you know, pasta and, and beans. And, and you have a, a, a complex carbohydrates, fiber. You have all the amino acids necessary for human sustenance. So, so the big common denominator is peasants' food made to taste delicious. And that last part, uh, that's the most important ingredient. Taste is the most important ingredient. And these blue zones, they know how to make this. It's very simple food, absolutely sing. Plus a bit of diversity, I think, as well. I mean, <clears throat> when I've gone to visit Japan and Italy and uh, Mediterranean countries, you do see some similarities, actually. I mean, <clears throat> you know, their noodles are the kind of spaghetti, but it's it's what else they put on the noodles. It's It's the fact that they have all these different specialty restaurants in Japan that will, you know, use all kinds of different ingredients and, you know, hundreds of different kinds of mushrooms and onions and, and all these beans and bean sprouts and all these little pickles and fermented foods and the equivalent, you know, so people think of it, of Japan as just sushi and rice. It's not. When you actually go there, it's very, very different to the sort of the westernized version of what Japanese food is. And it it varies a lot between the islands and uh, regions, just like it does in Italy. And so I think... It, I, for me, it's that diversity of the foods, the fact that um, there's great food culture, so people will make all this stuff in their homes that may have had peasant origins but is still carrying on, and they'll mix stuff together in rich soups and uh, casseroles all the time. And they're having fermented foods as well. I think that's the other thing that we don't really discuss enough is that you know in the Mediterranean countries, lots of goat's cheese and yogurts and other dairy ferments. And in Japan, of course, you've got all the misos and the fermented soy products that are eaten regularly. So you've got this diversity and the fermented foods and this food culture that is all about you know, passing on what your grandmother taught you to the next generation. I think they're also very binding things that, that identify these, these very healthy groups. Hi, I love that you're listening to this. It means a lot to me and the whole team who put such a lot of hours into this podcast each week. We release this show for free without ads to help millions of people improve their health with cutting edge science. In return, all I ask is that you help us on this mission. If you know someone who'd benefit from listening to this episode, please send them a link to this show. And if you haven't already, hit follow wherever you're listening right now. Thank you and on with the show. And Tim, I heard Dan mention like whole grains, like greens, tubers, nuts, beans. Um, 
What are your thoughts as Dan saying? This is like what I've pulled across from observing across those um, these blue zones. Like, what what does the latest science tell us about about those those foods? And well, tell us that Dan's exactly right. Those foods are good. One, perf- Dan. That's good. <laughs> <clears throat> and and up to recently, we didn't know why they were good. Really, we sort of because we've had this rather reductionist view of foods that you know reductionist uh, meaning meaning that we take the hundreds of chemicals in any one food and we talk about one of them so it might be carotene in carrots or it might be vitamin c in a lemon and we ignore all the 800 others there and this is where we've we've thought about what you know what's good about beans and we just thought about one thing in beans uh it turns out it's the entirety it's that diversity not only of the food but the chemicals within each food and the different fibers there might be there. And there's a lot of fiber in the foods that Dan was talking about? Is that the thing that really carries them together? Yeah, it's really a combination of uh, high-fiber foods, which feed our microbes, but also polyphenols, which are these chemicals within them that used to be called antioxidants that are also fuel for our gut microbes. And these polyphenols have lots of properties on their own uh, as as health-giving properties, but... I think the main action is by improving our gut health, and that's how we get all these universal effects. And I, I'd imagine my research on aging really is sort of pointed to the immune system being pretty critical here, because if you can have a healthy immune system, then uh, that immune system is is repairing your body continuously. It's it's fighting early cancer. It's repairing the cells. It's uh, making sure that you you do live to an old age by picking up problems early. And if that's in perfect condition and it's not fighting inflammation, it's not trying to do, not dealing with obesity. It's you know, it's really focused on its main job. That is how most of us uh, who do succeed to live a long time are going to do it. So, foods that are good for your gut are going to be good for your immune system and everything we've talked about. It's whole foods, and it's not they're not poisoning their system with ultra-processed foods as well. And I think it's interesting, Dan was telling me that some of these places have lost their veneer um, that they had because... Meaning? That the um, places like uh, Okinawa um, have now been exposed to ultra-processed food, and they're, they're not doing as well so as their they diet were. has changed, Gina. Is that what you're saying, Dan? So their, their diet has gone, moved from this sort of 100% whole food diets to increasing percentage of ultra-processed foods with chemicals and lower fiber intake and starting to see an effect on this. And just to make sure that um, that, that I'd underst- understood this um, right, I think w- what you're saying is if you look across the sort of set of foods that Dan was talking about, what you really see is foods that not only have all these polyphenols, which are all of these sort of magic complex chemicals, but they have a lot of fiber and that critically what you're saying is fiber isn't one thing, which I think is how... I always thought about it, and I suspect most listeners think about it, right? You see it on the back of the packet and it says fiber. Actually, I think you're saying there's like a thousand different sorts of fiber, and that we think that the individual bacteria in our gut actually eats specific fibers. So it's almost like, yeah. and, and that is that right? They're very picky. Yeah, they're very specialized and very picky. So that's why the diversity of foods, you know, whether it's even different beans, different colored beans, is going to produce a different set of gut microbes inside you that are going to produce different chemicals that might 
enhance your immune system even more and help you live longer. But I will say uh, just a couple of refinements on what, on what you've said about the blue zones. Um, the blue zones are actually subsets of the countries we're talking about. Like Sardinia, the blue zone in Sardinia is very different than Italy. The blue zone in Sardinia uh, is actually only six villages and they're descendant from a Bronze Age culture. They're matriarchal, like the rest of the Mediterranean's patriarchal. And they have a, a quite different diet. Same thing with Okinawa. Until 1917, Okinawa wasn't even part of Japan. It was called the Rukus Kingdom. And their diet is completely different. We tend to think of Japanese as fish heavy, but the Okinawans didn't eat very much fish at all. Uh, they tended to eat this emo, as I mentioned, tons of tofu, and basically what grew in their garden. And um, both of these blue zones did not have huge access to a, or a tradition where there was a vast variety of food. They were poor and they tended to have to eat what was available, what was growing that season. Of course, there were, there were herbs and there were spices. You know, often they had a kitchen garden. Um, but if, if you look at the patterns, typically they only had 20 or 30 rest, uh, ingredients at any given time that sort of rolled with the season. So as you went from summer garden to winter garden, those ingredients. But I mean, I think it makes it actually less discouraging for people because you don't have to think about having a hundred ingredients. Um, these people stayed very healthy for a long time. Uh, and Dan, I was just thinking like, People are quite familiar with uh, Italian food. There'll be a lot more people who say, I don't really know Japanese at all. Could you could you elaborate a little bit, I guess, on the difference between what these people in this these five villages in Sardinia are eating versus maybe sort of our traditional idea of what Italian y yes. food is? Because I think most of us are like, oh, I eat nothing but Italian food, pizza and pasta. So is that if that's the secret to my long and healthy life, I'm feeling really good about it. Yeah. So, so the diet of longevity in Sardinia is more a verb than a noun because there were at least three phases. Okay. Until about 1960, believe it or not, most of what they ate was bread and cheese. These shepherds had several different kinds of bread, sourdough usually, but also a flatbed called carta de musica. Uh, they were shepherds. So these men would go into their into their pastures. And olive oil, wouldn't they? Was... Olive oil, but not as much as you think. They're, the, the highlands of uh, Sardinia, um, the, the terrain is very rugged and not, and not uh, conducive to the olive groves like you would see. Uh, actually, more mastic oil, believe it or not, in, in the 40s and 50s. But to your point, olive oil is now ubiquitous uh, in Sardinia. In about 1960s, roads came in. And remember, centenarians were alive. They were middle-aged in 1960s. Amazing. Their diet shift. Um, they were still poor people, and they relied very heavily on huge gardens. And um, pasta started to come in, but there's more gnocchi than there is pasta. A lot of dishes made with fava beans. And um, um, the, of course, their celebratory food was, was pork, never beef, very little chicken. But on average, uh, about five times a month, they would eat pork. The family pig. Five times a month. So this yeah, is a very, very low level of meat eating you're describing. Very low level. The average and I American, guess if they're in the mountains, they're not eating a lot of fish either. No. In fact, you can see the ocean from the blue zone of Sardinia. But I met several centenarians that first time they ate fish in their life when they're in their 20s. Okay. Uh, and that's because it took a day to get to the sea. They didn't have a fishing culture, but maybe they get some fish. But by the time they got it back up to their village, it stunk. <laughs> you know, so you'd see this sort of dried cod once in a while, bacalao. 
they called it, and they you know reconstitute that. But it wasn't, you know, we tend to think fish is associated with longevity, but not a lot of fish in the blue zones. I think a lot of people will be surprised by that because there's such a lot of talk about protein um, today and this idea that we're all short of protein and you can find if you walk into the grocery store right an enormous number of things saying high in protein which suggests oh my it's god marketing. i'm like low on protein yeah, yeah but, but you probably know this but a, a cdc uh, center for disease controls in america so they tell us that the average american gets about twice the amount of protein they need so we're we're, we're getting way more protein than than we need. And, and when you I, look I think at these people blows, don't realize it, that you can get all the protein you need out of plant-based sources. So you don't need meat to be healthy. It, meat tastes good, but... And this low level of eating like meat and fish, is that common across the blue zones? All, yes, all blue zones. There's a subset of Adventists who eat no meat at all. Uh, the highest meat consumption in the blue zones, I would say, is in Costa Rica. But, and it's not that they don't like it. It's not that they're you know, more virtuous and they care about the environment, they care about animal suffering, they just couldn't afford it. Um, and as, as soon as, as you were beginning to mention, as soon as roads come in and they start adopting a more Western or American way of life, their meat consumption has skyrocketed, their uh, processed food consumption has skyrocketed. At the same time, diabetes has skyrocketed, heart disease. And in one of the blue zones, Okinawa, it produced the longest lived, healthiest people in the history of the world. And now they're the least healthy uh, prefecture in all of Japan, largely because of the fast food restaurants. And this thanks is within to the, American the period, film. basically, that since, since I started been, studying, with 20 years, that's they've incredibly, gone from the that's incredibly sad. people on the planet to the least healthy people in Japan, yeah. largely because of the American food culture. I'm very sorry. And of course, as soon as you start getting cheap meat on the plate, it's not so much the effect of that meat, but the fact it displaces all those healthy beans and other vegetables that they were eating before. So I think people have got this idea about a dichotomous view of meat as it's either healthy or unhealthy, rather than the fact that, okay, if we take away ultra-processed meats, which are nearly everyone agrees are unhealthy, you know, natural, well-cooked meat is fine, but it displaces, there's just no room on your plate. If you're having meat every day, you can't have the same level of other vegetables, legumes, etc., that kept these populations so healthy. So this is, I think, one reason. And also, we talk about this a lot in nutrition. Sarah always talk about it. It's instead of what, you know, we take it. It's not just one thing. In it, it has to be in context. So, as you said, Okinawa, you know, they've displaced a lot of the good stuff with the bad stuff. And it's so some of it is the bad stuff coming in, but a lot of it is they're no longer having the good stuff because there's, you know, their, their minds and plates are full of other stuff. One, one of your other guests, uh, Walter Willett, uh, famously said about meat, it's a lot like radiation. We know a lot will kill you, but we don't quite know the safe level. And if you look at blue zones, the suggestion of five times per month seems to be associated or it doesn't seem to be getting in the way of them living long, largely chronic disease-free lives. And it's interesting about the fish also, because I think most people listening to this will be, there will be some exceptions, a lot of people like, yeah, okay, I sort of know that red meat's not um, good for me, but a lot of people, and I think 
Sarah might be here also talking about the positive benefits of of, of fish. So it's quite interesting that that is not, uh, not something that you. I'm not saying it's not good. For I know you. you're not saying it, but you're not saying it's interesting that that hasn't been an essential component That's to be a right. blue zone. Because I might have expected that to have been like you know, oh, they will definitely be eating quite a lot of fish in their diet um, as a complement. So you know, maybe not a huge total amount of. Um, calories, but that was a really important nutrient. But it sounds like you're saying that actually fish eating is not essential to being one of these um, blue that's, zones. And being that's right, for sure it's not. But you have to realize, as I said before, the diet's a verb. It's changed dramatically, especially in the last 20 years. And, and they're almost caught up with the rest of Italy in this case of Sardinia uh, or exceeded Japan in the case of Okinawa at embracing this ultra-processed, meat-heavy diet. Of so you're basically telling a story that the blue zones are disappearing. They're going to hell. <laughs> is, that a, is, that a, is that really the sort of... Well, that, which is quite sad because we're all reading everything about how our climate is being destroyed and the world is falling apart and you have been seen almost in your own lifetime quite sort of, the way in which these patterns that were so healthy are falling away. That's right. But... Yes, and it's even hard though, to be isolated, though, isn't it? I mean, that's, yes. that's the other thing: is you get contaminated by cultures and pressures and marketing that's global, and so it's very hard for these, say, mountain villages, you know, around the world to stay isolated in the in their bubble. And I think that's that's the other thing we're seeing. So, like, you know, you used to only be if you had to live on the coast to eat fish. Now it's frozen, and you know, everyone can get it in their freezer. I guess the other thing that's really interesting is. Um, it tells you that this is a bit by chance is what you're saying. It's not like um, these people in these zones were like, this is my absolute favorite food and I'm choosing to eat it because it's my favorite food and it's making me healthy. Actually, it was sort of, they were quite poor. This was like what was available and that they could support where they are. And then when we've suddenly been offered all of this meat and candy and all the rest of it, you're saying they weren't like, um, I don't want any of that. Actually, they're like, oh, okay, that tastes, sounds tasty and unexpectedly this is then affecting their health is that the, the well there's, story there's a generational on, shift the diets of the blue zones i wrote it about them in a, uh, the blue zone kitchen uh, there's a lot of ingenuity and intentionality in creating these recipes it's usually the older the women who maintain the food tradition and they are genius at taking these very simple, inexpensive peasant foods and making them taste delicious, delicious, and they have a taste for them. So the so the cohort of people over sixty in Okinawa, for example, still have the highest concentration of centenarians in the world. It's the twenty year olds who uh, who started eating the burgers and the Kentucky Fried Chicken, and their taste buds have been napalmed, and they're now used for this richer, fattier. You know, enhanced flavors. You immediately food. play straight into my guilt as a parent about the <laughs> fact that I'm not bringing my children up well enough to like appreciate the sort of food that I know is good for their health. They were exposed to all of this like very easy to eat food, which tastes really sugary fast and lots of meat and all the rest of it. And if you get that, in a, in a, you know, you're saying, I think that because they've been exposed to that early, it's like, well, that's delicious. And this is, yeah. of course, what I would choose over this other food, which is also probably harder to prepare. Being a parent is really hard, particularly I think being a mother in most cases is still today primary care. Like it's it's really hard to juggle all of this. So I think that in the reality of the food that's around and available, I think there's enough guilt uh, around um, parenting. So I think 
that is a bit the reality of the environment we're in. And the question is, how could we make it it easier? And so I, I think, think it is hard, right? This is what we're... Yeah, I, I agree. It's that lack of education. It's not, I don't think it's anyone's fault. You know, they're told your kid will only have processed uh, apple puree from a little can that's got a baby picture on it. Really, actually, they, they can pretty much eat anything. And in that two-year window, they are really inquisitive and they will eat all kinds of stuff that they won't eat when they're three. And so you have that very narrow time to really expand their, their and no one is telling parents this. Hi, I'd like to take a short break with you. I hope you're learning as much as I did. In fact, I've learned a lot from this podcast and from the world's largest nutrition science study that we run here at Zoe. And with this knowledge, I now feel confident that the foods that my family and I are eating are good for us and our health. With my Zoe app, I can see exactly which foods are best for me, complete with recipes and meal plans. And actually, we cook most of our dinners with these every week. If you're worried about whether the foods you and your loved ones eat are really the best for your health, I and the whole team at Zoe would love you to join us and become Zoe members. We do realize, however, that not everyone is ready for personalized nutrition and that for others, it's still too expensive. And that's why we put this show out for free each week without ads. If you are ready for Zoe, then go to joinzoe.com slash podcast and get 10% off so you can start your own journey to improve your health today. All right, should we go back to the show? We spend a lot of time talking about food. I would love to pick up on a couple of other areas, Dan, before we talk about what listeners could actually do. Um, and I thought one of the things that was really interesting, actually, that um, I had never thought about to do with this Blue Zones was stress. Um, and... I guess the obvious um, starting point, I think, is many people listening will assume that these centenarians have lived a life without any stress, and that is why they've lived so long. Is that correct? People in the blue zones are exactly like us. They, they could be one of the three of us sitting here or anybody listening right now. They worry about their health. They worry about their kids. They worry about their work. They get stressed in their lives. Uh, they have a couple things that we don't have or have forgotten. Number one, they have these sacred daily rituals that help release the or tamp down the stress of everyday life. Uh, the Okinawans have this ancestor veneration. Uh, in their homes, there's there's always a shrine of, of remembrances of their, their parents and their grandparents and their great-great-grandparents. And they'll always begin their day with 15 minutes remembering where they came from. And to a certain extent, being able to relinquish their day up to these ancestors who they believe are still looking over them. In fact, you often see up along the the, the uh, ceiling, angled down at you, the portraits of all their ancestors sort of looking down at you. And I think that helps. The Adventists are big prayers. They wake up in the morning and they, they relinquish their day to their God. They say a prayer before a meal, so they kind of slow down and probably lower the cortisol level of that meal. The Costa Ricans and the Icarians are big nappers. Believe it or not, taking a nap is a great way to lower cortisol levels, lower stress. The other big point, they live in environments that lower stress. One of the easiest ways to lower stress is to go out with your friends, to not be alone with your problems and stew on them. So every time they walk out their door, they're bumping into their friends. They tend to keep live in extended families. So there tends to often be a grandparent who has 
uh, eight or nine or 10 decades of accumulated wisdom and resiliency that he or she can tra uh, transmit to a grandchild who's having a tough time. Um, they tend to be close to nature. They walk out their door and down the street and they're in a, um, they look at the sea or they're, they're in the forest. So, so much about lowering stress is the environment they live in. But I absolutely agree that stress is a, a very important component to, to manage if you want to live longer. A lot of these groups have communal eating and drinking, don't they? So uh, I've often thought that when I go to Mediterranean countries, the fact that people are having a drink, you see old, old folk, you know, gathering every evening to have a glass of wine uh, together. And they just have one glass of wine that lasts them two hours. Yeah, yeah. I've often thought that some of the advantages of, say, red wine might be the fact that actually it's it's doing something social. And uh, it and might, is there might real... be the same if it was kombucha or, or, or a, or a non-alcoholic drink, but it got them out. It, it was a reason for people to bond. And I think societies, you know, that are sort of anti-alcohol or uh, you know, don't have that similar bond, which is a sort of cultural one as much as anything. It's not like they're all alcoholics. It's just a, a cultural mix. does allow them to communicate and relieve stress and talk to others. And I think they're all sort of interlinked. So it's quite interesting how, you know, the, the idea of the aperitif hour. Uh, it's like you is, were saying about nutrients. You can't really pull the nutrient out and draw a conclusion. It's the package. Yeah. And, and you can, you can uh, pan out even further of the package that comes with eating a meal or the package with drinking a glass of wine. It's yeah, and the fact that these people are spending two or three times longer than the average American on a meal. I mean, I think, you know, the importance of that ticks all the boxes from A, you know, digestion to communication to uh, de-stressing yeah. to, you know, to making these other contacts. So just the act of a, a communal meal sort of ticks all these boxes that we now know are really important for longevity. And, and is there real science behind this idea that um, stress can reduce your life expectancy or that like being able to relieve your stress can affect this because you know I think people talk about it but is there actually is there, is there reality behind that well there's certainly lots of animal data to suggest that's true that uh, stress increases inflammation levels so you know mental stress has physical effects on the body which uh, it will make those animals die earlier. Uh, that's certainly true. It's hard to do those same experiments in humans. Obviously, no one wants there's, to be particularly stressed. There's but one study there are correlations, but done uh, among uh, caretakers, people taking care of someone with a disease, and they measure telomeres. The longer your telomeres, the younger you are biologically. And they followed with control group. And, and then, telomeres are just the ends of chromosomes that are like the, the, the plastic bit on a shoelace that uh, over time erodes and is a, is a way of uh, estimating your, your lifespan in a way. Right. And you want long telomeres. So a control group who just lived a normal life and then uh, caretakers of sick people, presumably under a lot of stress, over five years they had shorter telomeres than people who didn't have the stress. So there's pretty good evidence. And there is some epidemiological evidence when they followed up. There's a whole study back a, a few decades ago of civil servants, and they had all, all the civil servants records. In that, the UK. In the UK, when, when they'd 
uh, worked out when when they died, and they adjusted for all factors like weight and social class and education. And one of the big factors determining when they liked to die was what they call the locus of control. How many people were their boss? And if you were at the bottom of that food chain, right. and the idea was that person had very little idea they were in control of their life, whereas the people at the top of the food chain did feel at top of it, and they would live twice as long as the people on the bottom when you adjusted for all these other factors. And they've done similar studies in, I think it's um, uh, uh, gorillas and various other primates. So the amount of stress you perceive um, is definitely linked to longevity. And so as you're listening to Dan talking about like these ways that could de-stress, like that sounds a plausible element. Yeah, because you may not be able to change your position in a company or a job or a family, but if the way you react to it can be dissipated, uh, then then this is how you need to do it. And and if you're in that sort of community, you're much less likely to feel th those effects than if you're perhaps on your own or in a you know an, a sort of northern uh, sort of western type community where everyone fends for themselves. Yeah, I mean you haven't touched on it, but you know sitting here in uh, in a northern climate in November, I'm also thinking that the sun is shining quite a lot in these environments as you talk uh, about it as well, and yes. therefore your ability to like be outside and sort of take pleasure is presumably quite high. Is that, is that right? Yeah, well, we don't know if it's sun exposure. It might be in the vitamin D that comes from sun exposure, or you're more likely to be physically active, or you're more likely to have a garden. Or, my, or meet your friends. Or be, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's it's, the other, they're all linked. It's pouring rain. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to go outdoors. <laughs> but, you know, I, I'll add to that sort of stress conversation. In blue zones, uh, people tend to have a vocabulary for purpose. Plan de Vida in, in, in uh, Costa Rica or Ikigai in Okinawa. Uh, people tend to have a very clear idea of why they wake up in the morning. And I believe that's also a big uh, stress shudder. Uh, because for people who wake up and, you know, what what's my place in life? What should I do today? You get this sort of existential stress. Uh, the unemployed, I think, have it as well. Whereas people in blue zones don't have that. They know they have a responsibility to their family or to their communities. And ask the average American what their sense of purpose is. They don't, oh, I got to go to work. But in, blue, in Okinawa, you ask people their ikigai, they can, off the top of their head, they'll know why. Uh, why they're waking up in the morning, their purpose. And I think that also uh, relieves a lot of stress of the human condition. That's amazing. I'd like to touch quickly on something that, that we mentioned right at the beginning, which is physical activity, um, before talking about um, you know what someone listening might do. Um, and I just want to pick up on something you, you said earlier, which is sort of none of these people are doing exercise. What are they doing? They're moving naturally throughout their day. They're, they're moving all day long, but unconsciously. You know, I know this exercise is popular and it's sort of been a public health uh, intervention, but it's, I have to say in America, it's been a miserable failure. Uh, in the United States, fewer than 24% of people even get 20 minutes of physical activity a day. So all, we spent $150 billion a year on the exercise industry and people don't go. Yeah, in blue zones, they're moving all the time, but they spend zero money on it. And uh, yeah, my argument is, you know, instead of trying to hound people to get up and go to the gym or, you know, pay for this 
gold level membership. Um, design our streets so it's easy, safe, and aesthetically pleasing uh, to walk to get our coffee, to walk to work, for our kids to walk to school, which we don't do anymore. When I was a kid, 50% of American kids walked to school. We're down to 10%. 50% so, down to 10%. Yeah, in the United States. So it's we've amazing. engineered that physical activity out of our lives. And for most people, uh, simply walking uh, 45 minutes a day is about 90% the value of training for a marathon. And um, is exercise a good idea? Yes. But does it work on the population level? No. I mean, if, if, if I were investing, if I were a government investing in an intervention, I would not invest in exercise. I would invest in walkable streets, parks, meeting places, aesthetically pleasing outdoors. That's, we know that works. I think it's incredibly powerful and it's interesting. I think that um, I now work from home. It's worked incredibly well for the company. But it took me a while to realize that basically my level of movement um, had collapsed because before I used to commute and um, I was living in London, which like, you know, New York or, or Boston or something has quite good um, public transportation. So I would like walk to then go and take a underground train and then walk again at the other end. And then at lunch, you would go out and you'd walk somewhere to get some some food. And what I realized is, you know, I was regularly doing 10,000 steps a day before that without really having to think about it. This is just what would happen. And then I would suddenly realize I'm doing like 3,000 steps. I now am trying to engineer walking into my day. So for example, I like to um, walk uh, my daughter to school because actually that just creates in a really nice way, um, you know, sort of 45 minutes of, of walking. And similarly, I really try and make sure I have some reason I have to be out of the... Um, out of the house. And I have to proactively create that though, Dan. And I'm just thinking a little bit about your example of these people well, living on their hill villages, right? Where they're presumably having to go like up and down the steps quite a lot just to, uh, you know, to do anything. What's happened in America, there's a sort of centrifugal development where the cities are dying and people are moving out into the suburbs. So imagine you start working at home and you live in a typical middle American suburb. There's nothing to walk to. Your garage is attached to your house, so you don't even walk to your car. So you walk out your door, you get in your car, you drive to the mall, or you go to a drive-through Starbucks and pick up your coffee. There's almost no opportunity to unconsciously move. Until we look at the elephant in the room, that you cannot keep flogging the dead horse of individual responsibility if you want to get populations healthier. You have to set up their environment so you set them up for success. You have to create cities where it's easy for people to move naturally. And we're doing the opposite. And Dan, you are pushing on this yourself, right? This That's has sort of become your, your passion as well as your business is to try and yes. get cities to redesign themselves. Because it works. So if you're listening to this and you're in charge of a city, then you should be following up with Dan. If you're listening to this and you're not in charge of a city, but you want to understand like what's the actionable advice or how can I do this for myself? How could you make your life more blue zone like? Without having to move to a mountainous area. Yes. Yeah. Well, okay. The first thing is to shift away from the silver bullet mentality, which most of us have, to what I call a silver buckshot mentality. Silver buck means sort of a scatter pattern of, of little BBs instead of um, I, you know, it's a little self-serving, but I wrote a book called the blue zone challenge where I aggregated about 40 or so evidence-based ways for you to set up your kitchen, 
your bedroom and your home so you mindlessly move more, eat less and eat better, and socialize more. And they tend to do, you know, like in your kitchen, I'm a big believer that we're all on a seafood diet. We eat the food we see. <laughs> uh, so if if on your counter, a lot in America, a lot of, you know, we start eating a bag of chips and we don't finish it, we put a clip on it, we put it on the counter. Bad idea. Uh, instead, if you put a bowl, you go out and buy yourself a fan, the most beautiful bowl, fruit bowl you can afford and put that in the middle and keep that full. So when you walk through the kitchen, the default is fruit rather than the chips. Uh, there's actually been a Cornell Food Lab did a, a study on toasters. Very little of what we put in toasters produces something healthy on the back end. So taking the toaster off the uh, counter occasions people losing about two kilos after two years as opposed to those who don't. People who have uh, plants throughout their homes actually move more because um, they're watering plants. Uh, um, th there's little things you can do to nudge yourself into moving more. And I'm a much bigger believer in setting up your home, your commute, um, your social life. You, if your three best friends are obese and unhealthy, there's a 150% better chance that you'll be unhealthy yourself. So in other words, if your three best friends sit around and eat wieners and chips and watch TV, guess what you're going to be doing when you hang out with them? As opposed to friends whose idea of recreation is biking or walking or playing tennis. And uh, it's not a bad idea to have friends like Tim who, you know, love plant-based food. We think it's so hard for middle-aged people, but I argue the number one thing you could do to add years to your life is recurate your immediate social circle. Those three friends who you count on when you're, when you're having a bad day or with people with whom you can have a meaningful conversation, those people are going to have a measurable and long-term impact on how active you are, on what you eat. And uh, it's a counterintuitive. Nobody can make any money off of you, uh, but being very careful about who you let in, your, in the room. What do your studies tell us about gardening? Because there's some evidence that gardeners, well, epidemiologically are healthier and have healthier microbiomes. Um, do the Blue Zones tell you anything about how that might help them, or is it very variable? I don't know why, but I can tell you in every Blue Zone, almost everybody who are making it into their 90s and 100s not only garden their whole life, but continue to do so. And it might be because the, it's low-intensity physical activity. It's a nudge. When you have a garden and you've planted something you can't wait to eat, it gives you an incentive to go out every day and weed and water and harvest. And, you know, they're bending over. It's a range of motion. Uh, I've seen the studies that show that when you're gardening, your cortisol levels or your stress hormones drop. Uh, and it could very well be you get your hands dirty and you wipe your mouth and you're getting the microbiomes. There's a little bit of dirt. But I argue that gardening is probably much better than joining any gym, the best longevity exercise you could do. That's fascinating. Um, the one thing I guess we haven't touched on uh, so much is around the stress reduction. So you talked about these rituals in these blue zones, but those are rituals that sound very uh, rooted in the culture they're, they're in. So if someone's listening and saying, I really like that idea, um, what are the rituals that I guess, you know, that you do, for example? First of all, take your TV or your computer screen out of your kitchen. I think you'll eat more intentionally with less stress if you do that. Uh, eat together as a family as opposed to with one wheel, one hand on your steering wheel. Uh, take a nap, known stress reducer. 
belong to a faith. I'm, I'm not a hugely religious person, but um, people have a Sabbath. Um, you know, Jewish people or the Adventists, they, this idea of a, a, a sanctuary in time where 24 hours a day, they're putting their work aside and they're putting their busy social calendar aside and focusing on their God or focusing on their internal life. Um, hanging out with low stress friends. Um, these are all sort of ecosystem changes we can make to our lives that as opposed to remember to meditate, which I believe in, I'm a meditator, but I forget about it all the time. I'm so the benefit of your friends is it just makes it natural and it just happens versus something like a meditation, which is a bit like going to the gym. It requires you to yeah, sort of like remembering to do something. Yeah. Is that the difference that you're yeah. describing? So it's not that you're against it, but the point is it's a lot easier if it's just built into your social Ecosystem. fabric. That's right. And that's the approach. Because um, if you look at any sort of intentional behavior, health behavior, whether it's exercise, uh, uh, getting on a diet, uh, taking supplements, there's a recidivism curve. They all last months pretty well, in only a few amount of months, three to seven months, but then it drops off precipitously. Uh, I challenge anybody to tell me about one diet in the history of the world that's worked for more than 4% of the people who get on it after two years. So it's a great business plan, great marketing vehicle. You get people on it every year, uh, but it's a bad longevity strategy because when it comes to longevity, mark my words, other than dying, other than not dying, rather, there's nothing you can do this month that's going to make you live longer in 30 years. You have to think about things that you're going to do most days for the next dec few decades if you really want it to work for longevity. One last question. We talk a lot with Tim about what he eats on a regular basis. And I know that lots of listeners are going to be really curious about what your daily daily diet is. Could you share what you typically eat in a day? So I found the minestrone that the longest lived family in the history of the world eats. It's the Melise family in Sardinia. Nine siblings, collective age, 860 years. They make the same minestrone every day. And it's three beans, with all kinds of vegetables, carrots, celery, onions, um, some oregano, some red pepper, um, some potatoes or else maybe some barley, finish with an extra virgin olive oil. I make a huge pot of that every week. Then I store it in glass Tupperwares, glass containers I can freeze. And then every morning, my it's more like a brunch. I usually eat about 11 o'clock and that's, that's how I start my day. So in the Tim Spector way of thinking, I, I, I have this cocktail of, of all these fibers because it's got a grain and beans. I get my, my protein in there, all kinds of trace minerals, and I feel like I get a good base for my day. That's amazing. Can we get the recipe? You can get the recipe, yes. Okay, we will follow up on the recipe. I will give you and the we Blue will... Zone Longevity Cocktail. Yeah, we'll we'll call it the... the oh, the, the Dan Bootner minestrone, and we will definitely share it because I am, uh, I'm actually just, my, my mouth is actually salivating, never mind the longevity. <laughs> I would like to try and do what we always do, which is a quick summary. And Dan and Tim, will you just correct me if I, if I get any of this wrong? So we start off by explaining what blue zones were, which are these like 
particular places where um, people have aged healthily much more than anywhere else. And they're very small places. So it's not like Japan or Italy. It's like these very particular sort of villages where, interesting, what really distinguishes them, I think, is that they're not getting sick through middle age and later, and therefore they're ending up very old and healthy. And so levels of dementia and cardiovascular disease and all of these things are, are really low. That there's a lot that's just built into the environment that is achieving this. There are no silver bullets, uh, to use Dan's um, phrase. Um, but some of the things that are in common is the sort of foods they're eating, the fact that they're having to move constantly. So no one is going to the gym, but they are effectively doing exercise by just what happens in, in their life. They all live in places where the weather is quite good, but not right in the tropics where they're going to get sort of infectious diseases. Um, and then I think we talked about three particular um, aspects, and I know that there's more in, in the book and, and the show you talk about. We obviously talked a lot about diet. Um, and interestingly, although they are eating very different foods, there's, there's some real similarities. And, and you mentioned whole grains, you mentioned greens, tubers, nuts, and beans. And then Tim was basically saying, well, I'm not at all surprised about that because actually what you see in common with, with those foods is two really important things. Lots and lots of fiber and not just one type of fiber, but all of these diverse types of fibers and lots of these polyphenols. And so Tim is saying, well, that is what feeds their microbiome, supports all of these different bacteria that then creates all of these things that support the immune system. And your research, Tim, I think, saying that like this healthy immune system seems to be really crucial for, for fighting aging in, in the long term. You then shared this rather sad fact that I had not really fully understood that these blue zones are sort of dying. I guess they're becoming red zones, Dan, um, and gave Okinawa as this example where even just in 20 years, you've seen that as the diet has shifted dramatically, you see that suddenly they go from being some of the healthiest to the least healthiest. So you see just how important the, um, the diet is uh, in this. Then you talked a little bit about things that people could do about um, diet. And I thought one of them, which I'd never heard before, is redesign your kitchen. So how do you have like all this beautiful, healthy food on display, like uh, fruit? I was immediately thinking you could have the nut bowl there, but remove the toaster, which is, I think, really interesting way to redesign. And then you said you have the magic minestrone. So there are no silver bullets, but everybody on the listening to this now wants that minestrone <laughs> recipe. We will follow up. So if you're signed up for a Zoe email, we will make sure that we share the, uh, the minestrone recipe. Then we talked a bit about stress. And you said one of the things that's really interesting is there are sort of daily rituals that everybody has across these different um, blue zones. And so they were very different in different areas, but all of them are somehow very mindful. And whether it was like a prayer or like having a nap at a particular time or, you know, happy hour, it created this. And then in almost all of this case, there's very close community. So this is like with your, not just your immediate family, but sort of extended family. And therefore, if you want to think about how you can do that at home, get rid of the things that get in the way. So, you know, take the TV out of your kitchen, eat as a family. If you can, then actually belonging to a faith is really powerful because creating this sort of sanctuary is your word, which I loved. Um, and the thing you, that, that you said that, that really stuck with me is like, go out with your friends, but recurate your three best friends. So um, if your three best friends are not supporting all of this, who is the other friend that maybe you could be spending more time with, who like Tim is going to pull you into eating, you know, the better food, it's going to take you out and do something physical. And I guess that brings us to the last point about exercise. 
these people are all moving all the time, but you basically think this whole push to go to the gym has failed, right? We've been saying this in the West, whether it's the States or the UK or anywhere for decades, but actually nobody is moving. So think about how you design your life to move. How do you design your kids' life so that they move? And I think the example that, that you both spoke about right at the end, which was really interesting, is can you have a garden? That actually, if you have a garden and you're doing something actively, that creates this movement and this outside. So again, rather than thinking about exercise as this little spot that you do a few times a, uh, a week, how would you just get this movement that you're seeing in the blue zones throughout? Uh, but first of all, the brilliant summation. I can't believe you gathered all that, remembered it all, and were able to, to uh, so articulately repeat it. But um, just, just a couple refinements. First of all, dot, uh, exercise programs do work for some people. The very disciplined and people who can presence of mind, and there is a subset. I just say, as as a population intervention, it's not a very not very good return on the investment we put at. And then the central idea I like people to take away is in blue zones, people don't pursue health or longevity. It ensues, and it ensues from the right environment. And what we ought to be thinking about is not so much uh, New Year's starting a new diet, which we know is going to fail for almost everybody almost all the time, but how can we set up our lives and our ecosystem so the right behavior is more unconscious? And therein lies the long-term possibilities for longevity. I love that. And I think that... Um you know, one of the stories I think that I've taken from the last, um, you know, 18 months of doing this podcast is the way in which as a society, we've sort of been sleepwalking into this really unhealthy place. And in fact, mostly that hasn't been some evil plan by, you know, like the government or whatever. I mean, in fact, often it's come from really good things, right? Like new discoveries, like you can have a car um, or, you know, antibiotics saving so many lives, but then it turns out that it's changed our lives and there's been these sort of unexpected um, negative impacts. And so somehow we need, we need to design the world that we live in in a way which is just better suited to our human bodies. We spent most of human history uncomfortable and hungry. And uh, quite rightly, we've innovated, you know, recently. And we've, um, we, we now, you know, live in this environment of abundance and ease and, and uh, a glut of food. And we have a uh, uh, just we're genetically hardwired to crave fat, crave sugar, crave salt, and take rest whenever we can. And that works really well in this environment of scarcity. But in our environment of overabundance, it's a big negative. We're not going to change our genes. We're not going to change our genetic predisposition anytime soon. Um, so we need to re-engineer our environment um, so that we still have uh, you know, the acceptable level of comfort, but that the healthy choice is easier, cheaper, and more appealing than the unhealthy choice. And I think if anyone is listening to this right now and would like to redesign their town or city, wherever it is in the world, let us know. We'll put you in touch with Dan because that is sort of your life mission, isn't it? To try and uh, to make that better. And you're doing that in 70 cities, isn't that right? 72 American cities so far. Yes, That's it's amazing. worked. Brilliant. Dan, Tim, thank you so much. I really enjoyed that. Pleasure. An honor. Thank you. Thank you for joining me on Zoe Science and Nutrition today. Today's conversation about the Blue Zones has once again highlighted the critical importance of diet 
in supporting us to live a long and healthy life. And the story of Okinawa is another depressing example of how rapidly a switch to a modern Western diet can damage our health. If you're interested in getting personalized advice on the right food to eat for your body to help you feel better now and enjoy many more healthy years to come, then you can learn more about becoming a Zoe member by going to zoe.com slash podcast. You can also get 10% off your membership on this link. As always, I'm your host, Jonathan Wolfe. Zoe Science and Nutrition is produced by Yellow Hewins Martin, Richard Willen, and Tilly Fulford. See you next time.